Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. We have just announced the shortlist live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival and I have also caught up with last year's winner, Craig Brown. And in case you missed the shortlist, in alphabetical order... Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape by Cal Flynn. Aftermath, Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich, 1945-1955 to by Harald Jana, translated by Sean Whiteside. Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. Things I Have Withheld by Kai Miller. Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston. And Free, Coming of Age at the End of History by Leah Yippie. And now you can hear the conversation I had with the chair of the judges this year, Andrew Holgate, literary editor of the Sunday Times newspaper. Wow, Andrew, that really is such a strong shortlist, really extraordinary. Now, I have been a judge on this prize, so I know how hard the decision is to go from 13 to 6. Was it agonising? It was. It was really agonising. And we got down to about 8, and then there was, you know, yeah, I thought it was going to be a long evening or afternoon, but actually people were very generous and that's partly why this judging panel has been so wonderful, that we've had, you know, we've actually we've had very few disagreements all the way along the line. And where there have been, people have been very generous in saying, I see your point, and we came to a, a six that we were all felt happy with. What's interesting, hearing what you said earlier, is that, is that you wouldn't hesitate to press any of these six books into the hands of, of, of somebody. And in a way, maybe that's where that generosity comes from, where you kind of feel actually any of the 13 you would be willing to say to people, but with these ones, really seriously really, read them. Really, really, really. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I found myself after the meeting uh, going to do a, that camera work and I found myself cradling the six books uh, <laughs> in my arm like they were a baby. It was extraordinary. I feel very strongly about these six books. I feel very strongly that people will love to read them. Well, let's give people a sense of, of, of what they're about because they'll be new to many, many people. Let's start in alphabetical order. Mm. Cal Flynn's Islands of Abandon- Abandonment, a very unusual book, this it one. It is, it is, and, and slightly left field. It's, it, but it's a brilliant, brilliant... First of all, it's brilliantly written, uh, beautifully written. And it's about the human landscape after humans have left it and how nature basically takes it back, sometimes, often, in very odd ways, and how it creates a new type of, uh, of nature. Uh, and it, it sort of gives you a feeling of hope that uh, you, we may be trashing the planet, but nature is and will fight back. Interesting and very, very prescient very for, prescient. for, for, yeah. for our times. Uh, let's talk about uh, Harald Jana's aftermath. I mean, many, many, many books, not just from the rest of Europe, but from Germany, about Germany and the, sec- and the aftermath of the Second World War. What's different about this one? What's different about this is, is he's been very brave and said that Germany's uh, view of itself uh, after the war is possibly not correct and that, uh, that uh, there wasn't a feeling of... Uh, as we've all grown to believe, a feeling of uh, intense guilt. But there was actually, within a year, a lot of Germans, not all Germans, obviously, but a lot of Germans were feeling a sense of victimhood, uh, which is quite surprising. And then he goes into extraordinary and very, very rich detail alongside that about how the country pulled itself together again and the psychology 
around that and how they became a, a conf newly confident country again. And it's a terrific read, terrific read. Wonderful. Let's go on to the next one. Patrick Radden Keefe's um, Empire of Pain. This is about the Sackler family and yes. that just appalling, appalling Oxycontin um, epidemic in the United States. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, an intensely moral book, but brilliantly, brilliantly researched. And the key thing about this book is uh, as well that uh, it's, I'm not sure how long it is, about five, six hundred pages, and you read it like a novel. He's done a remarkable job. Uh, both of pinpointing uh, various things about the family and their responsibility, and also of making you, you know, I, I stayed up uh, very late reading this book. It's terrific. I, I mean, that, that's really interesting that, that you're learning new things all the time, and it's not, you know, it's not as if we don't know about the Sackler family. Yes, yes, no, he does, and he goes right back to the beginning of the family and exposes things that uh, I wasn't aware of uh, and other people haven't been aware of, I think, as well. Uh, Kai Miller's Things I've Withheld. It's a collection of essays, so this surprised me on yes. the shortlist yes. because and it's not often you see that in no, the Daily Giver. No, and there was uh, early on someone said to me, uh, you know, for a book of essays to make it onto the shortlist, there would have to be a really good book of essays. These are a really good book of essays. He's a, he's a poet, hmm. so he's a terrific writer anyway. He has an astonishing sensibility. He's, he's often counterintuitive. He's prepared to make enemies, I suspect, uh, with what he's saying. It's about things that are left unsaid by people, each of us to the other, particularly about race. And I've, I actually found some of the essays in there the most haunting things. <laughs> so, John Preston's Fall. Now, there are more than a, a, a dozen biographies yep. of Robert Maxwell. What's, what is it about John's book that really stands out? I think he's done... So, Craig Brown had a new... Sort of almost a new type of uh, biography last year when he did his Beatles book. And I, I, it feels as though this is quite similar to that, that um, a lot of the extraneous material has been, uh, has been cut away. And what we are left with is an extraordinary read about what is quite, fr who, what is quite frankly an extraordinary man. Uh, every, every single chapter makes you really gasp with some of the things he got up to and some of the things he uh, pretended. Um, it's, it's thoroughly entertaining. I think the thing with this as well is that it reads very easily, but creating a book like that that reads that easily is a very difficult task. But last but not least, uh, Leah Yippie's uh, memoir, Free. Uh, she was born in Albania, went yep. to Italy, educated in Italy. T tell us a little bit about Albania, a country that we don't really know very much no. about. What does she tell us about it? Well, she tells us, so, so it's, it's told through uh, the point of view of her when she's about eight years old. <coughs> and uh, it reminded me, actually, of, um, of uh, various other things like Lorna Sage's classic Bad Blood, where you get this child's perspective of what's happening. And she, uh, it's, she gets inside her own mind. And um, it's both about... She looks back with some fondness to some of the things that were going on then, um, but then discovers after the fall just how awful uh, a lot of what was going on was with people dying uh, in what she took to be one thing and were actually uh, death camps. And then it talks about the chaos that ensued, which, um, you know, which I hadn't read anything about before and was quite striking. It's a beautifully written book. Very, very strong indeed. Uh, and that, of course, has come through in every single one that you've talked about, that they are great storytellers and they are great writers. So 
You've heard it here, Andrew Holgate, a man who reads an awful lot. These are the books that he wants to press into your hands. Go to Waterstones, go to your local library if it's still open, order all six books and start reading. Perhaps you can do what the judges now have to do, which is make a decision from these six to the winner. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you all for being here with us. Thank you for listening. And we've whetted your appetite, I hope. Um, enjoy, and enjoy the rest of your time at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Thanks very much. I'm so pleased to be joined today also by Craig Brown, last year's Bailey Gifford Prize winner and author of 1234, The Beatles in Time. Welcome, Craig, and thank you so much for being here with us. So let's take you down memory lane, Craig. Um, remind us how it felt to hear that you had actually won the prize first. Well, I've been very tense before, because first you're on the long list and that takes a long time, then you're on the short list, and, and you do start fantasizing. And so I was very tense, and I, I think I was rather a bad winner, actually. Uh, though when I was told I was one, first I, I literally didn't believe it, because I thought it was just some uh, set-up for the camera. Um, and then I remember the rest of the day and the next day, I was just sort of gloomily walking in the marshes of Suffolk in a, in a deep depression for some reason, because you can't, um, you know, you obviously want to be happy at the, on these happy occasions. Um, but uh, but uh, it, there was a sort of happy ending to it, because over the next few weeks and in a way the whole year uh, you know you do feel uh, first you feel a lot richer uh, which is always nice um, but also uh, you know every writer even a sort of satirist like me uh, has this uh, guilty seeking after respectability and I think I think it gave me a kind of respectability which might be a good thing or a bad thing but uh, you know, because uh, I had been seen as just a funny writer, and, and now you feel, oh, I've gone a, a notch up. Well, which is quite interesting when you think about the kind of gloominess that you're talking about. I mean, how quickly did that arc go from being gloomy to, to being perhaps elated? Is too uh, strong a term for it, Greg? <laughs> um, well, there were little, um, there were little gradations. Uh, first, you hear it's tax-free, so you think, well, that must be better. <laughs> um, but you, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not. Uh, yeah, it, it it just took it took a little bit of uh, time, but it was very nice actually. When people then start emailing friends, then you know the news gets out, and you uh, there's a lot of goodwill, and so that's um, that's very nice. And, and how would you characterise the extent to which it's transformed what you've been doing for the past year? Um, actually, uh, it's made me. Um, uh, find, I think it's made it harder to think of what the next book should be because it, it kind of ups the ante, you know. And so it may have been that without this prize, I'd have thought I could do some tiny little book about some obscure subject. But now I sort of feel, oh no, I've got to think of something like the Beatles. You know, it's such a sort of big, fascinating subject. You almost can't go wrong with it. And I think getting the yeah, so that, that might have slightly blunted my. Um, my my yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, yeah. The, 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 what, you're, what you seem to be saying is that actually it's quite complex <coughs> winning a prize. I think, I think it is complex because, because also you have a kind of camaraderie with the other uh, writers on the long list and then the short list. And, and it's kind of embarrassing being the one because it is in some ways uh, random and you can sort of sympathise with, I don't know. Uh, it, so it is, it is complicated. I'm not saying I'm going to 
give back the prize or anything <laughs> like that. It's eventually a very nice thing to have. Uh, of course, uh, yeah. and, and I, I also wonder about that moment when you are waiting to hear whether you've been on the shortlist. As you, you, you say, it's a long process of actually waiting. Yes. And, and, and so, you know, we, we know that people are waiting to hear whether they're on the shortlist or not. It's obviously a huge deal to be on the long list. What was going through your mind when you talk about fantasizing? Do you just kind of go from thinking, well, of course, it would be lovely to be on it, and then you think, oh, no, I'm not going to be I'm on not, it? Actually, I've been on the long list uh, before, for uh, the sort of book before last, book called One on One, but it seemed to me such an unlikely one to win so I didn't even I wasn't even aware of it sure I you know I, I, I didn't but with this one I was more um, you know uh, keener for it to win and you have so much time that even if you're indifferent at the beginning after two months actually you do start wanting to uh, to win it um, and I you know on this year's I had a, a very good friend on the long list who's not on the short list and so I think you know, that's very disappointing for me and, uh, and also for them. Yeah, of course. And, and so, I mean, when you, when you think about what that moment was like when you were told that you were on the shortlist, it, of course, then the fantasy is, am I going to win it? Because it's a reduced number of writers. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you think, oh, well, if it's 12 to 1, if you're on the long list, well, it becomes 6 to 1 if everything's even. And then you start thinking, well, you know, if I was judge, I wouldn't choose that book. And, I, you know, then, uh, and you, then you think, oh, because my book was about the Beatles, which is a very much more kind of popular topic than the other books, which are more uh, sort of uh, peculiar, um, you think, well, are the judges, would they be prepared to go so pop and not highbrow? You know? And so you start trying to make calculations into the judges' brains and things like that. I, I think it's such a wonderful contrast, uh, Craig, that the... the, the the, the emotional arc that you describe and the book itself which is just so joyful and I think that's one of the things that really resonated with the judges they wanted to reward the engagement with the you know the minutiae of stories that we learned about the Beatles but also that it was just so full of joy well that's very nice because actually I have always thought that you know a lot of prizes um, they they uh, reward solemnity and I don't I know or they think that seriousness means you know dullness in a way and I, and so I, I'm, I'm in that way I'm, I'm uh, not ashamed of winning if it if it slightly broadens it out and says you can have one which is about excitement and fun and uh, and kind of wit and comedy uh, and about popular culture and so so yeah if, if mine's a sort of spearhead for that kind of book I'm obviously I'd hate it also if uh, you know highbrow subjects um, and, and peculiar subjects were ignored but I think it's nice to have everyone on board for a possible prize. And we're at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, the sun is out, what's, what's been wonderful for you here? What have you seen and heard that you've enjoyed? Um, well I, I, I'm not, I, I don't like Led Zeppelin but I went to see Jimmy Page talking because I thought it's so odd the idea of Jimmy Page talking at a literary festival and uh, I thought it was a charming uh, moment when he suddenly said that he had to go and be excused and could they, could they turn off the microphone? And then the poor interviewer was left on stage just by himself. And I thought, this is what happens to rock stars. Um, <laughs> and so, and then I went to see, I mean, to be honest, I don't really like literary festivals because I think everyone should, the one thing you can't do in a literary festival is, is read a book. You know, you're, you're just hearing people chat about things which they, uh, books which they've often spent, you know, a year, two years, three years, getting just right and then it's sort of into a sprawl of conversation so I don't I basically don't approve of literary festivals but 
that probably won't be on the finished video. Well, it's wonderful <laughs> to see you at one, Craig. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. It is so wonderful to be here in person at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. We've now had some time to mull over the shortlist and the six authors. And in the green room, I came across a few people who I was able to talk to about not just the shortlist, some of which they had read remarkably, but also the art of narrative non-fiction. Colm Tabin, Anthony Selden and Alif Shafak. So we're in the green room, or the VIP suite, if you will, and um, you don't get much more VIP than um, the novelist Colm Tabin, who's sitting next to me. <laughs> hello. Um, hello, Colm. So look, we've got these books here. This is the shortlist of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize. Um, first of all, let's talk about non-fiction. I mean, you, you must read an awful lot of non-fiction. Um, yeah, for this novel I've just written on Thomas Mann, obviously read anything I could about this period so, so I'm absolutely fascinated by this book Aftermath Life and the Fallout of the Third Reich and, and I think we're, we're, what's happening now I think is that people are using an uh, extraordinary range of styles to write non-fiction um, for example there's a book about the Munich Revolution the so there was a Soviet Revolution in Munich in 1918 and it was mainly run by poets so it gives somebody there's a book called Dreamers which describes this, but it's almost poetic itself, the book. It does so from a number of angles and perspectives. It's not just a straightforward A, B, C, D, E chronology of history. But I think sometimes we do need that. I mean, I know Patrick Redden Keefe's work because he wrote a wonderful book on Northern Ireland, yes, called Whatever did. You Say, Say Nothing, that I think has had enormous influence in letting people see the actual different, different ways in which the cruelties that were committed at that time happened. And now he's devoted himself to the whole question of Oxycontin. And I think, he's a, I think he's a remarkable journalist. And when I heard he was doing this book, I mean, I immediately looked, when is it coming and when can I get it? Because th this, is, this, this, this is really very exciting. And, you know, when I saw the K. Miller book, I recognized, I know him. And, of course, I know him as a poet. Yes, and I think there's another thing that's happened. I, I think it started a while ago where, you know, um, poets began to write a memoir each and then poets moved into prose. And it's not as though that they can write novels, because in general they can't. I mean, there is a DNA. No, but in general there's a DNA thing that poets... I'm now going to go and look for poets who've written good novels. Well, the poets in general don't write good novels, and that novelists in general don't write good poems. I mean, it goes both ways. But this idea of the book of essays or the personal memoir or the book of essays is something I think that every... Um, I mean, this starts with a letter to James Baldwin, and, and, and it is, in a way, I suppose, a book like this is a way of placing yourself as a poet in a context of giving the background to poems. So it becomes a sort of necessary book for your audience to know you. And, uh, and I know his poems, but I didn't know this book existed. So this is very good. It's called Things I Have Withheld by Kay Miller. It's published by Canongate. And, I'm, and, and that's certainly You're definitely interested yeah. in that one. So let, let me just ask you another question about the idea of, of, of non-fiction itself. And, 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 and I also want to focus on prizes in particular. But when it comes to non-fiction, I've been a judge of this prize in, in previous years. And the storytelling is really important. And of course, we rely on storytelling when we're reading novels. How important is it to you that it isn't just about revealing something as we're learning in the Sackler book or revealing something personal in the Kai Miller book, but, but actually just reading 
an absolutely ripping yarn or a page turner. Yeah, I think that Joan Didion is the queen of this. And, you know, a lot of writers of nonfiction look to her because she said the sentence, the opening sentence, I think it's of the White Album, is we tell ourselves stories in order... To, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And then she went on in... She was both a novelist and a non-fiction writer, but I think her non-fiction is probably better because it's so carefully structured and the tone of it is so fierce and sharp. It isn't as though she slackens off when she moves away from fiction to non-fiction. She makes her non-fiction really serious. I think there are other, other writers who have done this too, like Norman Mailer. I think um, V.S. Naipaul has also done it, um, where, where their essays have a remarkable shape to them. And, and, I, and I think that that's something that's, that's happened in non-fiction, um, especially since the Second World War. I think it's something that grew in the 50s. Obviously, there was new journalism with Tom Wolfe, but there are many novelists now who... Um, I mean, I wrote three, I think I've written three actual travel books, but it got too lonely. I got to... I found, you know, being in Bratislava on your own on a Saturday night, it was just too much for me. I just couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Whereas sitting down and writing a novel is not lonely. Yeah, in, in the same way because you're doing it at home, because you're doing it in a chosen environment, because you can go out in the evening or you can, you know, watch a movie or you can reason. But being in a funny hotel in, you know, the former Eastern Europe, you know, I just have to say, it's not for everybody. Speaking of the former Eastern Europe, on the shortlist is this book by Leah Yippie about Albania. Oh, I know about this book. Yeah, I mean, it is. You know, you know what's going on now, and it would make a marvelous book. Someone tells me that Tirana, which I think is a wonderful name for a city, Tirana, Pirana, Tyrant, is the happening place for nightclubbing in Europe. For those who've tired of hearing about Tel Aviv being that, Tirana. And I heard about someone who was, uh, you know, who was in the Catholic Church who was sent to Tirana, meaning as a punishment. And someone said, no, no, you don't understand. Tirana. Italians will go for the weekend to Tirana. And have you been to no, Tirana? I think it would make a very great book if you described my adventures in Tirana. But this is, this, this is a book about coming of age and the end of history. So, she, you know, one of the most isolated places. But, I mean, it is a fascinating idea because there's so many Albanians in Italy now. Um, I have friends who are Irish and people think, keep thinking they're Albanian because their accent in Italian sounds like Albanian. Because they're, you know, so it's, it's, so it's, it's been a sort of an outpost, um, Albania, which means, of course, in, in our age when the periphery is becoming the centre, we're all going to end up in Tirana for our anniversaries, for our stag parties, for our birthday, <laughs> significant birthday parties. People are going to say, oh, where did you go? Oh, Tirana. Oh, my God. You, you know, we, it, did you, you know. Isn't that the best idea? And it would make a great book. Wouldn't it that would make a, make really a I'd great read it. Book I'd called, read that book. My Adventures in Tirana. So listen, let's talk about the couple of the others that we haven't spoken about yet. John Preston's book yeah, about I read Robert Mack. I read a marvellous review of this book by Geoffrey Wheatcroft in the New York Review of Books. And, I mean, it is one of the... It, it, it proves to us that you can become anyone you want to become just by dressing up or taking a different voice. I mean, the extraordinary move of Robert Maxwell from being down and out and stateless to becoming someone who you, you had to reckon with. And all the time, he left a trail about being an imposter. And, uh, and then his death was, I mean, his death, and then the pension fund. So, I mean, look, John Preston has all the luck because, you know, and you could write all you want about Rupert Murdoch, 
Rupert Maxwell is the one. We, we know what Rupert Murdoch's father and mother were, but this guy really does, really is mysterious and does prove what a strangely porous society England is. I don't think you could do this in France. I think somebody would catch you in France for not being who you said you were. But this idea of post-war, of these figures being able to fit into England. What about America? I mean, America is the kind of classic place of reinvention. He broke all the rules here, and everybody tolerated him right through. Isn't that extraordinary? That I feel in America, the IRS is always... I mean, I, mean, I live in America a lot of the time, and the IRS is always coming to get you. And if you messed up, they would really have you in handcuffs and dragged out of your house. Uh, people live in fear of the IRS. In a way that I don't think the internal revenue here... I mean, it's nice, and I'm sure it's very effective, but it doesn't instill... I don't ever hear people saying, oh, my God, I woke up in the night, and it was the internal H revenue. HMRC. HMRC, we're after me. It is, yeah. It, in Ireland, it's called the revenue. You just wouldn't live in fear of it like you would of the IRS. I mean, America is a funny, law-abiding society until it isn't. But if, but if you're caught, you're in terrible trouble, especially if you're white-collar. I mean, they really go after you with a vengeance. No, I feel, I feel Maxwell would have been got in America early on. Interesting, interesting. The final book on the shortlist, uh, Colm, is Cal Flynn's Islands of Abandonment. This is a very unusual book about landscapes when humans have vacated. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the kind of what happens to those places. It, it feels like this kind of personal narrative journey through these extraordinary yes. abandoned see, places. We have that in Ireland from the 19th century, famine villages, that you just see a few ruins and you realise that's what that was. And that has an extraordinary sort of resonance, especially when it comes before photography, where you don't have any sign of it. But... Um, I mean, it's abs I mean, the idea of Detroit as, as being this great manufacturing place, and then you could buy a house there for five bucks and, and move in, except that it's a wasteland, and they let it happen. And obviously he's got Chernobyl, and he's got, um, you know, areas that have been mined and all that. I think this is a great idea for a book. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, wow. This, this looks like a great a list. great shortlist. But, yeah. but tell me, what do you, what, what's your view on prizes? That writers need readers, and um, that's one of the ways of getting them, and publishers need sales. And so that's, you know, it, it's just one way. It certainly made a difference to me with the, um, the Booker, you know, just being on the shortlist. Just that people with started... With Brooklyn? Well, the first one, first one, one was, was, was the Blackwater Lightship. And people really started to pay attention to me. When before that, I was just some sad loser, you know, who wrote some books. And so I say, how did your last book go? Don't ask, don't tell. You know, don't ask, don't tell. And um, so, it, it, so it sort of moves things. And, um, of course, it also... I'll tell you what it does that's really quite important. It also creates enormous levels of disappointment in those who are not on the list, which I think is very good for your character. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's character-forming, and it's very good for your general moral living in the world that you can't win everything or have everything. And that, you know, like a child, you have to be trained. The sweets are all not to be yours. So I think that we should cast a thought for someone who nearly made this list and who has a wonderful book that will now have to make its way in some other way in the world. So, you know, it's, 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 you often, you know, y y you've been a judge of awards and so have I. You realize sometimes it's a question of eye contact across a table for a moment. If you gaze at someone too severely, they won't join you in loving a book. Whereas if you soften your gaze too much, they'll just say, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not. <laughs> you know, so that it often is a lottery. It often is about who, who gets to win or lose an argument. 
But um, I have to say that um, all of these do seem really interesting books. Really, I think they're very strong. It's going to be a tough decision for the for the judges with this one. Contabine, just an absolute pleasure well, thank you to very speak much. Thank with you. you. Thank, thank you, you so thank you. much. This is such an excellent green room because um, sitting next to me now is uh, the author, Elif Shafak. Uh, Elif, fantastic to see you. Lovely to see you, Razia. Um, tell me, um, let's talk about non-fiction first because we're, we're here to, to mark the shortlist, the announcement of the shortlist of the Bailey Gifford Prize. I mean, you must read an awful lot of non-fiction that isn't newspapers and magazines. That is true. I love reading non-fiction. Of course, fiction is where my heart beats. You know, most of my readings are fiction. However, I've always been interested in multidisciplinary readings. So whether it's politics, philosophy, political philosophy, cultural history. But, you know, I also love reading cookbooks. I love reading graphic novels. I don't like to compartmentalize knowledge. And I think if a book speaks to us in that particular moment in time, it is the right book for us. Uh, what I try to do is not to stay in one zone. I love eclectic reading lists, both from East and West. Well, let's take a look at this reading list. There are six books on the short list, and I don't know if you have heard of any of these or, or read any of them. Uh, let's start with um, whether you've read any. Uh, I have read this one. So the Kai Miller, um, Things I Have Withheld. So this is a, a man who is a, a poet, and this is a collection of essays, which is unusual in the context of the Bailey Gifford Prize. Uh, t tell me what you, d you loved it, you said. I loved it, and, and I'm also looking forward to reading the other books. I have Islands of Abandonment, you know, I I'm planning to read it next, but I would love to read all of them. Uh, what you said is so important because, especially right now, I think a, a much more fluid way of writing, if I may put it this way, you know, across genres. Um, bringing together poetry with perhaps more political thinking, you know, questions about identity, belonging, our ancestors' journeys, but also this moment in time which is so full of anxiety, almost like an existential angst. I, I love books that dare to go beyond divisions of genre and, you know, categories, and the themes that it deals with is also very close to my heart. Tell me about the notion of, of prizes because, you know, people are divided about the, the efficacy of, of prizes, whether they are useful or not. Certainly they're useful for publishers, readers, you know, the money that it brings to the, the writers who win. What, what's your view on, on the value of them? It's, it's complicated. I mean, I wouldn't believe a writer who claims they don't care about prizes. You know, I wouldn't believe a writer who says, I, you know, I don't feel anything if I've been longlisted, shortlisted. Of course, we are happy when we are longlisted, shortlisted, primarily because, especially as novelists, you are on your own for such a long time. It is really a very lonely job. You know, it's not a job, it's, it's how you live. But you're a solitary creature, and to learn that your book meant something to people who have never met you, um, you know, that it has been recognized by judges from completely different backgrounds, of course it's precious. Uh, and, and of course it's very precious to also especially get the love feedback from readers, because that's a very pure, you know, very direct relationship. If a reader loves a book, they love it. If they don't love it, they just put it aside and no one can interfere. So there's something very honest, very straightforward in that. I, I find all of that very heartwarming. 
I do, however, criticize a few things about prizes. I wish we had more prizes, you know. Uh, I would like to see more authors being nominated for a variety of prizes, being eligible. Also, I think sometimes we tend to forget that there are different types of storytelling, especially for an author, let's say, coming from China or the Middle East, someone, you know, coming from different parts of Africa who is more familiar with oral storytelling, which is a bit more cyclical, circular, like stories within stories, or stories where there is room for repetition, because in oral storytelling, like from Mesopotamia, there's room for repetition, you know. Sometimes we tend to forget that there isn't a single way of writing a novel. I have a lot of respect for the Western canon of the novel, but I also try not to lose sight of the fact that there are different ways of storytelling, especially when you think about this cultural variety across the globe. So it is important that as judges we respect that diversity, that pluralism within the world of storytelling. Of course, you've been a judge of book prizes and you've also been shortlisted for prestigious prizes. I mean, it, it, let, let's talk about disappointment because clearly of these six authors, five of them will be disappointed uh, when just one is chosen to win. I mean, is it valuable to feel disappointed? Can it be valuable? I think it is valuable and also th th the way it is. I mean, every author on this shortlist uh, and the ones who have been longlisted but also nominated, they all deserve to be read. At the end of the day, prizes can be a little bit subjective in the sense that if it were a completely different composition you know, of five other judges rather than, let's say, these judges, it might have been a completely different outcome. And that's human, that's very you know, normal. We need to understand that. But if prizes can also celebrate the works of authors who have not won the prize you know, and try to promote uh, or amplify their voices, their storytelling, I think that's a beautiful thing to do. So uh, disappointment is part of this journey, in my opinion. But it is, of course, um, at the same time, people do feel happy and honored when they're shortlisted. I have no doubt about that. Tell, tell me about a book or maybe a couple of books that you have wanted to press into the hands of other people that you've read. I mean, maybe not recently, but, but just generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, so, so, many, so many books that I wanted to press into other people's hands. I try to share a little bit on social media, sometimes on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter, the books that stayed with me. If there is one little silver lining in this otherwise very problematic, complicated time that we're going through, this tunnel of pandemic and uncertainties. That silver lining is that people have been reading more books or we have been you know, celebrating the art of storytelling. You will remember not that long ago, there were so many people both in academia and media talking about the death of the novel, how books were going to disappear, you know, the actual print copies were going to become redundant, unnecessary and that's not what's happening. Perhaps the faster this, you know, the speed of change, the more our need, almost existential need to slow down, go to an inner garden and retreat into a story, you know, or a, or a poem or a novel. So stories or the art of storytelling, the format might change, but stories will be with us, I'm hoping, for a very long time. So rather than, you know, maybe talking about one specific book, I just want to point out that it is a time when we need books more than ever before. Elise Shafak, always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, I'm still in the VIP room. Let's call it the green room. It's so much better. Um, and I'm with Anthony Selden. Um, 
Let's talk about the shortlist first of all, um, Anthony. What? How? How many of these books have you heard of? First of all, I've heard of half the books, and but I wished I'd heard of all of them, and I wished I had read all of them because looking at them while you were talking to me, I thought, why have I not? And you know, there's always more books that are out there that you want to read than you have time to read. And what I like about these is they're also quite short, you know? <laughs> because if you start a book and you just are not going to get on with it, it's like having a conversation with somebody and you know that it's not going to work out so you can talk to the person on your other side. If it's a short book, you kind of have got some way in. But, um, yeah. You do so many different things, but you write non-fiction. So how much non-fiction do you read? I do not read as much non-fiction as I would like to read and I sometimes have to read it selectively so at the moment I'm writing a book about a walk I just walked back from Switzerland along the line of the Western Front in honour of a soldier who died who had a vision just before he died about creating a path of peace from Switzerland back to the English Channel along which he said he wanted every man and woman in Europe to, to walk as a reminder of where war leads death from the silent witnesses on both sides, on both sides the Germans as well and the Austrians as well as the French and the British uh, and so I've created uh, helping to create that pathway with a team of people um, to, so that we can have young people of all nationalities walking uh, side by side because when you're walking side by side you often can relate to each other better than if when you're looking at each other, eyeballing each other. You're less self-conscious, for example. And uh, so creating that. And I'm reading so much uh, non-fiction about it, but, uh, but not sometimes whole books, books I've always wanted to read. And I think that necessarily, um, if you're writing books yourself or if you're running universities or whatever it is you're doing, you have to be selective. So uh, my wife always used to say that I always knew about books because I'd read all the reviews and countless places, whereas she actually read them, and which was so galling um, and annoying because it was so true. And uh, but I do read books, but it tends to be more functional. I mean, what what which books do I need to read for what I'm writing about or thinking about or doing? The, the story the germ of the story that you just uh, told was just so powerful and of course storytelling is absolutely crucial when it comes to non-fiction I mean all of the judges say about these books that they're cracking reads that they would be books that they would press into people's hands I mean that the, the art of storytelling in non-fiction is is a really important art isn't it yeah, I totally agree because I've just been talking here with Steve Richards about the Prime Minister and we were saying the most successful Prime Ministers are those who told a story. Uh, so Tony Blair didn't really find a story to tell whereas Thatcher did have a story and Churchill had a story and, and if you're a Prime Minister at a time of a crisis like uh, Roosevelt um, uh, in, in the Depression you can, you can engage people and going way back to pre-literary societies, it is the stories, it, it's the oral traditions that hook us. I spent a lot of my time teaching children um, in, in schools and more recently in universities 
you know, they much prefer stories to analysis uh, because it, it involves them and stirs them in a in a very elemental way, and 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 that's true of of the great non fiction books um, there, there is a beginning and a narrative drive and you're wanting to find out what's happening next and where it's going and it then reaches some kind of conclusion uh, that, that leaves us in a better place so uh, there's something uh, almost prehistoric about that uh, deep psychological need in us to, 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 to immerse ourselves in narratives Anthony Seldon, always a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this time. Thank you so much for joining us today. The 2021 winner will be announced at an event at the Science Museum, generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. That's on Tuesday, the 16th of November. Do tune in to the next podcast where the prize director, Toby Mundy, will be in conversation with each of the shortlisted authors over the coming weeks. To find out more about the shortlisted books and authors, do head over to at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And you can also sign up for the newsletter through the website. As always, thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast. Until the next time, bye-bye.